Hi, I'm Mark Olson, and this is The Real, a podcast where culture and entertainment meet. I write about movies here at The Times and between movies and TV. A big topic of conversation among my colleagues on the entertainment staff here at the paper is how tough it is for any of us to just keep up. So this show is about the stuff that we're watching and how we watch it. This week, as we continue to pivot into award season, I've been personally struck by how charged up so many of this year's movies are. It's as if the feelings of anxiety and immediacy so many people are getting from the world at large have made their way onto our movie screens with an alarming speed and connection. So I was joined by Times film reporters Jen Yamato and Travel Anderson and film critic Justin Chang to talk about what we expect from our movies, what they can do to inform, explain, or even distract us, taking in a broad range of titles from Fahrenheit 11.9, Monsters and Men, The Lie, Assassination Nation, and Suspiria. Let's listen in. Coming out of the Toronto-Venice-Telluride triangle of fall festivals, I was really struck by how many contemporary connections, how of the moment, so many of the movies felt. And to talk about that, to get some sense of what that might mean, where that might be coming from, and whether that's even what we want from our movies, I'm joined by some of my colleagues here in the film department. Travel Anderson, film reporter. Jen Yamada, film reporter at the Los Angeles Times. And I'm Justin Chang, film critic for The Times. And now, Justin, I know you in particular have become something of a news junkie recently, and you kind of can't take your mind off current events. And so maybe a way to start this conversation is, do you take that with you into a theater when you go to see a movie? Like, how much of what's going on in the world are you taking into the theater when you're going to see something? That's a really good question, and I don't know that I have the distance to answer it because I feel like a lot of us who write about movies, we are so plugged in all the time. And I think even when the movies aren't there to supply, you know, maybe the most meaningful social commentary, I think for all of us who make a living writing about movies, it's like we are the idea that a movie is more than just an evening's entertainment is not anything new to us, but it is new to maybe quite a few people. So I'm not sure if, you know, the whole escapism versus engagement question, I've always believed in both and that the two and that the two are not mutually exclusive either, you know, so it's weird. Like when I was at Toronto and I saw A Star is Born, for example, I thought, oh, this is kind of a great piece of kind of classic Hollywood escapism. But, you know, the kind of movie maybe that people feel like they would think things such as they don't make them like that anymore. This is just what I need to kind of get away. And and maybe that feels a little foreign to me because I'm sort of used to, I mean, we're all, Jen and Travel and you, Mark, also, we're all used to kind of seeing like this through this prism or what is this saying about this? And we look for that. Some people just don't want to look for that. They want to kind of turn their brains off. And I envy them sometimes. I understand that impulse. And even A Star is Born, starring a Lady Gaga, is not pure escapism. It's it's melodrama heavy on the drama. So there's a lot of broccoli in that mac and cheese. So even escapism, I think uh, traditional kinds of escapist films, especially on the studio level, are fewer and far between than they certainly used to be back when we had perhaps more of a collective agreement that movies were where we went to escape the real world. And Travel, a movie that's opening uh, this week as we're having this conversation is Monsters and Men, written and directed by Ronaldo Marcus Green. And that's a movie that's about sort of like the aftermath and the ripple effect of a single act of police violence throughout a community. And 
obviously that's something that people are grappling with in the real world. For you, a movie like that that's trying to make sense of something that we could call current events, do you want that from your movies? How do you feel when you go to the movies and that's what you get? I mean, I've I've said this already before. I personally am... There have been a lot of movies that seem to fall in what I'm now calling the uh, Black Lives Matter cinematic universe, where they all have something to deal with, you know, this movement for Black lives and police brutality and and racism and, and all of that, right? And so in addition to Monsters and Men coming out this weekend, that's, you know, Black Klansmen and that's Sorry to Bother You and that's Blind Spotting. And, you know, we will talk about this later, but that's Widows in, in a way when that comes out later this year. So personally, it's the hate you give which comes out next month so personally i've been kind of tired of seeing just like black death on on screen because i've been we've been seeing it a lot this year in particular um and so i'm kind of wanting a little bit of that quote-unquote escapism that's one thing i loved about crazy rich asians right it was just such a really good you know rom-com it was so cute um and i didn't have to necessarily think about the ways in which it is depicting real life that being said i do love how all of these different films that i just mentioned kind of approach this topic from a different vantage point with monsters and men it's done through kind of the perspectives of these three different guys whose lives are impacted in some way by the killing of of this black man in this New York neighborhood. And that style of death is very similar to Eric Garner's death, who was uh, uh, killed by chokehold by uh, some cops in New York a couple years ago at this point. Um, And so it starts with kind of the guy who films that death, and we see a little bit about how that death impacts his life. And then we switch to the perspective of a black cop who's, you know, in the precinct that is responsible for making this arrest and the precinct that's responsible for killing this guy and then we switch to the perspective of a a teen, uh, a young black boy played by Kelvin Harris Jr., Harrison Jr., um, who's kind of coming of age as this all is going on in his neighborhood. And I like that approach because unlike some of the the other films, we see how this kind of death in this community impacts everyone else, not just the immediate family or the immediate, you know, community around this particular person. But I I, I must admit and say that I would like to see a little bit more of, you know, just random things that we aren't necessarily trying to say reflects or says something about kind of our current environment. Just because it's, for me, there's just so much of that happening at this point in time. Justin, with regards to Monsters and Men, one of the things that I like so much about that movie is that as much as it's dealing with these very contemporary issues and anxieties, there's a stillness to it. There's a thoughtfulness to that movie. And as you were talking about the other day, I mean, it grapples with this sort of cinematic language in a way that I found really compelling and felt very fresh in the context of the story that it's telling. And is that something you like about the movie or how, how do you feel about it? Very much so. I think it's an incredible piece of first-time feature direction by Reynaldo Marcus Green. And what Travel was saying, this if we have I like the idea of a Black Lives Matter cinematic universe. And three of those movies premiered in competition at Sundance. And those were Sorry to Bother You, Blind Spotting, and Monsters and Men. I hope I'm not forgetting one, but I think those were the three. It's an, and two of those, of course, are Blind Spotting and, and Monsters and Men are directly uh, set in motion by a police shooting of an unarmed black man. And so, and it's weird because Monsters and Men flew a little under the radar and blind spotting, which I think screened on opening night was, you know, it is kind of the flashier movie, but I responded to Monsters and Men more 
Because I recently spoke to Ronaldo Marcus Green, the, the filmmaker, and he said something that I was really struck by and that to him, part of the inspiration for the movie was him taking in, just asking himself, like, what would, what should I be doing right now? What could I do? What can I do to be responding to these things? And he realized, like, what he could do is to make a movie. And so he did, and he tried to kind of grapple with these issues in that, that way. And I just thought that that, to me, on the one hand, that sounds so simple. And on the other hand, that I was really struck by that being sort of like his response to the moment and this thing that he's then giving to us, like as an audience. And I think I just to add, I think one thing that's interesting about Monsters and Men, um, when compared to the these other films that we're talking about specifically in, specifically in this space, is it definitely is not necessarily trying to tell you a way to believe or, or something to think about the situation. It's just kind of showing you three different perspectives of how people come to and are affected by this issue. I mean, it's like. I feel like every filmmaker talks and says that they want their film to be like a conversation starter and spark conversation. But I feel like this one, it's purely for that purpose is to spark conversation because it's while there's obviously, I think, messages that someone can take away from one of the three perspectives that are represented here. I'm not sure that it has this kind of direct purpose beyond I want y'all to have conversations after you leave the theater. Whereas when you look at a Black Klansman or you look at a Sorry to Bother You or or even a, a Blind Spotting, I feel like there is a specific takeaway that I at least got from those particular pictures. Whereas with Monsters and Men, it was something that that made me think about the the approach to to the storytelling. And I think that's what I respond to about Monsters and Men. And I don't know Mr. Green's influences or whatnot, but watching it, I felt like he watched a fair number of like European art house movies. Like he'd watched maybe some Darden Brothers movies. I don't know if he has. I don't want to speculate. But that style, I think, which I, I you know, I, I think is, you know, I'm always really excited. I mean, we talked about this on the episode of with if Beale Street could talk, what Barry, you know, another BLM CU mm-hmm. <laughs> movie. I got one, one of the that, better ones. Okay? You got it. It's, it's yours, <laughs> Treville. Um, which in which you know t- I talked about that on a recent episode of the podcast where Barry Jenkins, you know, and his appropriation of you know a certain cinematic language used in a very original kind of way. And I think that Reynaldo, Reynaldo Marcus Green is doing the same thing to some extent. But I think it's interesting if you're looking for ways in which people of all kinds are trying to process the ways in which especially especially, particularly this country has changed in the last few years. I think we're seeing it at the movies in, in studio movies and in independent movies, more so in independent movies, but also in studio movies, you know, like there's a higher, I think awareness of, to put it one way, wokeness at a studio level. You see even escapist movies like Dwayne Johnson's skyscraper movie, integrating a subplot that isn't central to the movie, but a subplot where he's also disabled character. And I think that was a really meaningful thing, it seemed, from reading disabled critics and fans writing about that movie. So that's a, that's a thing, that's an awareness that I don't think we had in previous generations. You even look at a movie like Shane Black's The Predator, which, all things else aside, you know, the actual, the tone of that that movie made for an audience in 2018 is one that acknowledges that the Shane Black line of very machismo, very sort of, you know, risque humor that flew in the 90s 
that was his bread and butter in classic Shane Black eras is no longer acceptable to, you know, modern audiences. So that so the new movie, the new Shane Black movie, is Shane Black sort of commenting on acknowledging that, you know, you can't just throw out really offensive terms as a punchline, but the acknowledgement of that punchline is now a punchline. So it's, it's kind of interesting to watch a filmmaker like that evolve with the mm-hmm. times as well. Well, Travell, you just had a terrific interview with the actress Hari Neff for the film Assassination Nation, which yes. is a movie that begins with a very sort of like playful series of trigger warnings, like all the terrible things <laughs> that will happen in the movie that you're about to see, and sort of both is like cautioning the audience and also ramping the audience up. Like what for you was kind of like exciting about Assassination Nation and in particular about, about talking with Hari Neff? Yeah, well, so I, I initially saw Assassination Nation for its, uh, it was one of the midnight premieres at Sundance. And it is a special, interesting movie because it, it's just so special. And not necessarily in a, in a bad way. I know I say that and it sounds, you know, negative, but it's, so it's billed as kind of a, you know, movie about like the Salem witch trials for the internet. Right. And so you have this group of four young teens played by Hari Neff, Suki Waterhouse, Odessa Young and Abra, I think is how you say her name. And basically their private data, the entire city's like private data, their Snapchat messages, their emails, all of this data is leaked onto the Internet. And the entire community basically begins to turn on each other, ultimately all deciding to gang up on this group of four ladies as if they are responsible for the leak. And so it's about these young women kind of fighting back against a society that is trying to literally kill them. It's actually really interesting and really amazing to see this kind of intellectual action thriller type movie fronted by four women, one of which is black, one of which is trans. Um, Hari Neff is trans outside of the role and her character is trans as well. And it's it's just so interesting. Written by straight white guy, Sam Levinson, um, who says that he, he, you know, he said that he was inspired to make this movie, you know, from a very primal place because he was bringing a child into this world where kind of mob rule seemed to be taking over. And so that's kind of where the the inspiration came from. And so it's just so interesting, a, a movie. I do want to give a shout out to Anika Noni Rose. She plays Abra's mother in the film. And after seeing, there's this short bit near the end where she has the opportunity to do some action stuff. And now I want to see an action movie with Anika Noni Rose in the lead because it was everything. And now, Jen, a movie like Assassination Nation wants so much to be something of an equal opportunity offender. Like, every nothing's off the table. Everything is kind of up for grabs in the making of it. And it makes me think of other movies that we're seeing right now, maybe something like, say, Suspiria that's going to be coming out soon, where it's so wild and so out there. And to you, like, is part of what these movies are getting at is this idea of, like, what are the limits? What can we be offended by what's too much like how how do you kind of make sense of of some of these movies i think the suspiria is a movie uh speaking with the the screenwriter david kajanik it's a movie that he and director luca guadagnino did not intend to be liked by everybody so it's a very difficult movie um almost by design and he he told me that they expected it to be divisive. And to that end, I think it's very interesting 
uh, thing to go about a project, loading it in with so many ideas, which it has in spades, and so many very intentioned uh, parallels between today and uh, today's America, even and you know nineteen seventy seventies Berlin, where it's set. And to just put it out there and hope that people respond to it to whatever degree that they will. But actually, you know, Assassination Nation reminds me more of a different movie that is also an equal opportunity offender that that I think people will have maybe a similar reaction to. And that is Joseph Kahn's Bodied, which has been waiting a fair bit to come out. That's a movie that is about a white battle rapper who kind of like goes down the Eminem path and uh, rises to his peak powers in the battle rap scene, but sort of loses his humanity along the way. And that's a movie that's also, I think, uh, from a filmmaking standpoint, sort of trying to, to start a conversation about where is the line today? Where are those lines of conversing and um, disagreeing, frankly? And how do we resolve these limitations um, that vary very wildly depending on people with the need to actually like talk with each other about what's going on today. So I think that's going to be a very interesting one in terms of, you know, sparking somewhat controversial conversations. Embodied is a film that premiered at in the Midnight Madness section of the Toronto Film Festival a year ago, so the 2017 edition of the festival. And it's played a, only a limited number of festivals since then. What I, I, I follow Joseph Kahn on Twitter, and I try to keep track of what he says about the distribution situation for the movie. And I think it's it seems like it's perennially in this like coming soon situation. So that hopefully, more people will get a chance to see Bodied in the in the near future. I think soon. Because Jen, you also wrote a, a terrific piece recently about a movie called The Lie that uh, premiered at Toronto this year, and it just your piece made the movie sound sound very provocative and very much like it's about the kind of things that we're talking about. In that it takes what could be a kind of a straight thriller, but just injects it with something that a consciousness that feels much more like up to the moment. Yes, and um, along the line of this this greater conversation we're having about. Movies that feel timely, either, you know, subtly or otherwise. This year's Toronto, I feel like I saw and, and talked to a lot of filmmakers who had America on their mind, post-election anxieties of the country that they saw around them or even across the country in other communities, not their own, and bake that into the stories they were telling. One, as you mentioned, is The Lie, which is from writer-director Vina Sood. She's the showrunner of AMC's The Killing. And she recruited Mireille Enos and Peter Sarsgaard from who she worked with on The Killing and Joey King, the star of The Kissing Booth on Netflix, <laughs> uh, among many other movies, to star in this really, I think, well-tuned chamber piece thriller about a family, two parents and their teenage daughter, who whose lives are upturned by this one huge consequential lie that that is told. And it's a really interesting way to explore something that you kind of don't see coming. Um, it's almost Hitchcockian in how it unfolds in this sort of snowy, icy season in, uh, they filmed in Toronto. But Venus Sood is very interesting to me. It's a, she teamed up with Blumhouse to, to make this. So it sort of falls in line with their post-get-out, you know, social thriller kind of 
programming, if you will. But Venus Sood, I think, is somebody who who intensely, very thoughtfully thinks about what is going on in America and processes that in her projects. Her, her most recent one was this show, Seven Seconds on Netflix, which could also technically fit into the Travel Anderson trademark. It definitely BLMCU. Yes. And also for which Regina King just won an Emmy, Emmy for. Yeah. Yes. And that show is about uh, how a community reacts to the death of a teenage African-American boy at the hands of a white police officer. So Venus Sood told me, we, we sat down and I, I interviewed her about the lie. And she told me she had America on her mind, frankly, when she wrote this. There is a subplot involving a neighbor of this family who is not white. And that becomes a very important part of the story. The story ultimately, without giving anything away, is ultimately about how we justify moral gray areas. uh, We justify placing ourselves and moving into moral gray areas in the service of self-preservation or protecting our own. And so Venus Sood told me she had the treatment of migrant children and immigration in America and, and frankly, Trump voters who she said, quote, don't see themselves as racist on her mind as she was writing this. And I, I, I think it's a really interesting way because it's not overtly part of the storytelling, but it's definitely in there. Justin, I want to be sure that we talk some about the new film from Michael Moore, Fahrenheit 11.9, the documentary, in that that movie pulls together so many different currents and so many sort of like different news cycles in a way and tries to get them all under one kind of thesis in that I think the movie's been sold as being sort of Michael Moore's like ultimate anti-Trump film. And in some ways that almost becomes like a funny bait and switch once people are in the door to see the movie. And then it turns out it's pointing fingers at sort of a democratic establishment, maybe a liberal establishment, as much as it would be pointing fingers at the Republican side. For you, what what do you maybe like about that movie or not like about that movie? And how do, how do you feel about how it kind of like is attempting to like get the pulse of what's happening today? It's strange because when I watched that movie, um, I mean, talk about a film where you almost feel like there's no separation from when you, you know, are just at home reading the news and then walking into a movie theater. It, it feels, it just blurs those lines. It almost feels like you walk out of the theater and the movie is still going on. The movie is still playing. We're living in the sequel. The movie is still going on right now. It's interesting to me, too, that the film bombed. Maybe it's not so surprising because I don't think Moore has had a success as resounding as Fahrenheit 9-11 14 years ago. That movie made, you know, more than $200 million in theaters and, you know, was at one point expected to tip the election uh, away away from the re-election of of George W. Bush. Uh, It didn't do that, of course. And this film, which is sort of a companion piece right down to its title, only made about like $3 million, which I suppose is still a decent number for a theatrical documentary, but by what it was expected or hoped for would accomplish it. it. It's a real disappointment. And I think that's for a lot of reasons, but it's mainly because, and I actually think this is maybe a strength of the movie or it works to the movie's benefit is that Moore's tactics as a documentarian where, you know, the, the kind of the sledgehammer aesthetics of it, the, 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 the sort of the, the mix of reportage with cheap shots and, and, and all these things that kind of drive you crazy about a Michael Moore movie, even if you agree with what he's saying, which I 
often do, it feels like our political discourse is just so degraded that this doesn't feel shocking anymore. We are out, out of outrage. What Michael and nothing that Moore could do. His old, I mean, he does some of his old stunts in this movie. He goes up to, you know, the, the Michigan governor, Rick Snyder's, um, you know, house and, uh, hoses down his lawn with water from the polluted Flint River. And it's, it's Michael Moore doing his shtick, that kind of thing. Just, it's, it's funny, but it's, it, whatever, you know, we're so far beyond kind of, and, and to the movie's credit though, that kind of stun is not what's strong about it. What is strong about this movie and what works about this movie is when you hear from the residents of Flint talking about what was done to them. It is actually a very shocking moment when you learn that, for example, that like Snyder redirected, you know, gave the clean water back to General Motors, but not to the people of Flint. It's like, that's, it just makes you want to go out and throw something, you know? I mean, it's just I mean, even, you know, so there are moments in the film where it retains, you know, you feel emboldened again, or you feel just some kind of passion. And it's when, you know, he talks to those, you know, he talks to the striking teachers in West Virginia. He talks to the students of Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida. And it's when he actually does go to the heart of grassroots activism and steps out of the frame himself and lets them speak that this movie does, I think, achieve a power. It's very, it's, it is a mess. It's all over the place. It's very splintered and fragmented, but that also feels very true to our reality. And it feels true to the fact that it's not, it, it's, it's to the credit of the movie that it's not just a Trump bashing movie, although I would have absolutely no problem with that. But it's, it, it reflects the fact that the Trump story is, a Me Too story. It is a story of environmental crisis. It is a story of political corruption. It is all these things. And that's why we feel like we're living in the same horrible, I don't know what to even call it, just umbrella for the past two years or so. So that movie was, you know, I appreciated it. I was glad when it was, I was simultaneously kind of glad when it was over and also kind of wanted to see almost some more of it too. Can I plug really quickly two other documentaries? One of them is actually Hale County this morning, this evening. Oh my God, yes. yes. Which, uh, Travel, I know you, you probably saw it I at saw Sundance. It Sundance. Yes. I saw it at Sundance. I saw it just recently, and what a palate cleanser after Fahrenheit 11.9 that was. I mean, it's this is a beautiful impressionist documentary directed by Ramel Ross. Is that what we call it, impressionist documentary? <laughs> It's, you know, it's one interpretation <laughs> of it. I don't think it's a genre. Maybe it is a genre. I don't know enough about that no, it is. genre. It's, it's a weird genre. It's weird. And it in was, a good way. In a really good way. I would love to hear it. It's like 1,300 hours of footage in Hale County, Alabama, specifically focused around two young African-American men and their families. Lots of shots of quotidian detail. Again, something I like. A very poetic... <laughs> Very poetic, almost, you know, kind of an experimental film language. And, you know, it is a beautiful, I can't remember the exact quote at the beginning, but he talks about, it's basically, the movie is, is a reclamation. It's, it's like, how did we come, how did we, I think as black people come to be seen? And I think the movie puts itself forward as a corrective. Like, yes. here is something that is away from the sort of sensationalized, uh, you know, skewed images that you see of us on the news or whatnot. And here is just, here is how we live, and here is a lot of tragedy, but also a lot of joy, and it's a beautiful film. He speaks about that. I uh, did a, a Q&A with him out of Sundance yeah. that is on the website somewhere. Check it out. Check out Travel's Q&A with Ramel Ross, absolutely. And finally, I want to talk about opening um, a new documentary. It's also from Sundance that is opening is Bisbee 17, directed by Robert Green, who you may know from films like Actress and Kate Police Christine. He's a very, you know, he kind of openly and unabashedly, I think, intellectualizes the documentary form in a way that can, you know, really get under your skin and, and perplex you, but is always very stimulating. He does that here. This movie is takes as its subject – 
an incident that happened on July 12th, 1917, so more than 100 years ago, when in the copper mining town of Bisbee, Arizona, there was a labor dispute between the mining companies and the the miners who were on strike, many of whom were of Mexican and European, Eastern European descent. And on June 12th of 1917, there was a deportation where the sheriff deputized like 2,000 people. They all had guns and they rounded up these uh, mostly most of them were were these these immigrant laborers, these miners, but also their supporters. And they put them in boxcars and shipped them out 200 miles to New Mexico and left them there and said, if you ever come back to Bisbee, we'll kill you. So this hideous tragedy, miscarriage of justice that is now being revisited by the town 100 years later, they're commemorating the anniversary of this horrible event. And it, he talks to the people of the town as they are preparing these roles that are going to reenact this deportation. And I don't want to say too much about it. It's a movie you have to go and experience. It's a beautiful piece of filmmaking, but it's very strange. It is not at all how you would expect a documentary to approach this material. And the effect of it, I think, is to get you to think about how these issues impact because this is a, it's a movie about immigration it's about xenophobia it's about labor versus capital it's about you know corporate greed it is this very much you know it is you know the past is never really past as we learn from this documentary but i do think lots of movies are are saying something even if they're not directly saying something. gaspar noe's climax is definitely it kind of reminds me the setup of climax in which a, a dance troupe turns in on itself when somebody spikes the sangria with lsd it sort of reminds me of the premise of assassination nation and the idea that that filmmakers are concerned with what happens when societies turn on them, themselves in america and you know in, in france where gaspar noe's his actual, you know, like that's who, that's where that film is set. That's interesting to me. And yet some people, many people will just go to see Climax for an escapist, like fun dance mayhem movie. So there's something for everyone. Which it works quite well as for half an hour. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> and with that, we're going to wrap up our conversation um, about uh, sort of the cinematic now. Can you tell everybody where they can find you, Travel? Yes, I'm on the internet at Travel Anderson. Jen? I'm Jen Yamato. You can find me at, at Jen Yamato. And you can find me, Justin Chang, at Justin C. Chang. And this is Mark Olson. You can find me at Indie Focus. And for The Real and everyone here at LA Times Studios, thanks for listening. 